Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and senior editor Sue Sutter. Today is August 6, 2021, and while many of us are either looking forward to or already on our summer vacation, the FDA and, its, and some of its colleagues in the federal government continue to make news. This week, it was announced that the agency will be the subject of an invest, inspector general review related to the controversial review of the Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. Sarah, you looked at this for us. What did we learn about what's going to happen here? So um, one big thing about this review is obviously we know that um, FDA Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock had requested OIG look into Aduhelm in particular. Um, the OIG has actually um, decided they're going to do a broader review of accelerated approval. Their um, announcement certainly indicates Aduhelm is a focus, um, but it's going. they're going to look at a broader sampling of products. It's not clear yet which products or how they'll pick and so forth. And, you know, some people have different opinions as to whether, you know, they're really just looking at other products to put Aduhelm in context or whether they really want to be very thorough and thinking about how FDA is handling the whole accelerated approval program. Um, but certainly, I think maybe FDA got a little bit more than it um, was thinking it was asking for when Woodcock <laughs> made the request, if the entire program may be put under a spotlight. Um, one thing I thought that, you know, for industry folks is particularly noticeable, noticeable is um, um, OIG says, you know, one of the things it's going to look at is kind of industry um, and, well, FDA and interactions with outside parties. So that, uh, you know, most likely means drug companies um, as part of the accelerated approval process. So that could be interesting. Um, the other thing that I think is um, just important to note, I think sometimes people have use the term investigation here, both when Woodcock kind of requested this and um, when it was announced. And one thing I was told in kind of reporting on this a bit is that, you know, an investigation is a very has a very specific meaning in the OIG world. Um, and this is actually a review, which is probably a good thing for FDA. Um, and investigation is more of a law enforcement type activity that would mean they're, we, they were looking into potential fraudulent or unlawful activities and could come with um, the potential for administrative, civil, criminal penalties. This is a, probably a slightly lower stakes review. They're going to, you know, assess and evaluate the program and, you know, write a report and offer recommendations. Um, so, um, maybe a little bit less for FDA to worry about than if it was a um, investigation. Although, um, as people told me, investigations are usually something that are um, kind of kept under wraps while they're ongoing. So I suppose there's, a, you know, if, you know, they found something that was worth investigating or if there is something here worth investigating that could also be going on at the same time and we might not know anything about it. Yes. It's 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 fun to like kind of reminisce how when we first saw this, like that this was happening, kind of how our minds immediately jumped. And we had we had this we had this like long conversation like, whoa, they're investigating them. Does that mean that like, you know, our 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 processes at the FDA going to slow down because they're so worried about this? Do people have to go and hire lawyers? I mean, what? 
you know, you know, we were thinking like back to the 1980s, obviously generic drug scandal as a, you know, did, like, does that, is that what kind of like compared to what they're doing here? And the answer is like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the one thing, I, I, I don't know how much this will actually, you know, impact FDA's worth, like how burdensome it will be for them to kind of produce whatever materials or do any interviews for this. You do, you do sort of wonder if like, this investigation being ongoing, like, does it impact the work of anybody working on the review of other accelerated approval processes, uh, products, I should say, you know, like, does it have any um, just impact for people um, moving forward as they're looking at other products? Yeah, and I, I did, I did hear a little bit about that, for, you know, in the context of the generic drug scandal, where you know, when they were, when that investigation was going, you know, full, you know, full blast. And this was after kind of the revelations had come out, I think, um, is like a congressional committee was, was doing the work and they, they said that they couldn't like the generics office, they, they were afraid to approve stuff because, you know, because they didn't know kind of how things were going to work out and what was going to happen. So it was the approvals like really, you know, in the generics office at that time really dropped um, in the aftermath of that while it was going on. But that's not to say whether that would happen in this case. But, you know, you, you that it is a good question of whether, you know, the people, you know, reviewers that are working on, um, you know, accelerated approval applications would, you know, whether those some of those decisions will be, you know, re, you know, get some extra thought maybe or, you know, there'll be a little more longer discussions and meetings and so forth on how the, how the policy is being applied. That was sort of what I was thinking was um, maybe they'll they'll spend a little bit more time in deciding, does this really qualify for accelerated approval? And I think another thing that <clears throat> is, has to be factored in is this whole issue with the confirmatory trials. And if the OIG review extends to you know, this issue of whether or not drugs are remaining on the market having failed their confirmatory trials. Um, we've seen FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence uh, initiate a review in 2020 of the PD-1 inhibitors that failed uh, their, their confirmatory trials. And six indications in that class have now been voluntarily withdrawn. And we just saw a... a seventh indication for a non-PD-1 drug withdrawn when Bristol-Myers Squibb announced it was pulling a lymphoma indication for Istadex because that too had failed its primary endpoint in the confirmatory trial. Big criticism around the accelerated approval program has always been <clears throat> the length of time it takes to confirm benefit in some of these studies and the fact that some of these studies have not confirmed benefit and drugs have remained on the market. So I'll be curious to see whether the OIG review um, tackles that issue. And when I was like kind of looking in our archives um, as I was writing this story earlier this week, one thing I did note that it um, it was quite a long time ago. It might have even been 2006. But one thing OIG has looked at um, at FDA in the past is sort of inconsistencies or um, you know, FDA not doing a good job of ensuring post-marketing requirements are followed. And, you know, that was a bit broader than just accelerated approval, but obviously accelerated approval is a big part of that. So OAG does have sort of a track record of looking into this at FDA and kind of hammering it for them, obviously, since um, 
that report, I think there were some kind of changes made in some of the user fee bills to improve stuff there, though. Well, and we also saw this week, or maybe it was within the last few days, maybe not necessarily this week, the, you know, kind of um, advocates of the pathway who, you know, are already kind of going out there trying to at least, you know, make statements defending the, you know, defending it, saying, you know, that, you know, trying to, you know, kind of head off, you know, these efforts to whether it's curtail it or, you know, kind of put it, you know, kind of reset the the perception of the pathway at this point. Right. So Rick Pazder spoke publicly. Um, time is so hard to keep track of these days, maybe about a week ago or so now, <laughs> um, a little longer, give or take. Um, and an event and he was really um, tr- seemed to be trying to kind of rally people to um, defend and protect the accelerated approval program, emphasizing how important he feels it's been for cancer therapies and cancer patients. Um, but, yeah, you could certainly sense in in him the concern that there's going to be changes made perhaps in Congress or through other ways to the program that he feels like won't be beneficial and be harmful. And his sense is that critics of accelerated approval are sort of getting more notoriety, perhaps, or more attention than um, the many people that support it. I think Rick Pastor would much prefer to see companies voluntarily step up and take their drugs or indications off the market if they cannot confirm their clinical benefit as opposed to um, a mandate coming down from Congress or OIG. Yeah, I, th- I think I would, I would agree with that, that I, yeah, I think they, you know, leaving it to kind of how it is now, which is sort of not really an honor system, but kind of like that, but pro- I'm sure industry would prefer as, to, as opposed to being, you know, told definitively to do something. Um, so, Bottom line here, and, and this is just this is a question that somebody uh, called me yesterday and asked: How bad is this for the FDA? I mean, I think we kind of laid it out, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of thinking that it could have been a lot worse, and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the right answer to that question, but <laughs> I think it could have been a lot worse. But I think the fact that they're going beyond Edgehelm to the broader issue of the accelerated approval program, um, as Sarah said, I don't think that's what FDA bargained for or necessarily wanted. Even with the lengthy time frame? Even with the lengthy time frame. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did point out in the story that, um, right, the OIG says they won't be finished with this until fiscal year 2023. So does that kind of get FDA off the hook in, you know, the next user free cycle? Maybe. Um, And maybe that's helpful. But who knows, you know, um, certainly, well, it's it's hard to, we haven't really, there hasn't, hasn't actually been as much concern, I think, about the Aduhelm approval on the Hill as some people might have expected. There's certainly a few offices, I think, that have raised concerns about how the process went, but not as many as we might have thought. But, you know, even just the fact that FDA is being looked at by this um, with OIG could spark some, you know, consideration by Congress. And certainly I've talked to other people over recent weeks um, that already thought that, you know, some changes to accelerated approval might be on the um, 
you know, high up on the list of what Congress is thinking about when they do the next user fee bill. Now, I think that, again, most people feel like there's probably going to be some amount of trade-offs there because there's certainly a lot of people in Congress who want more use of accelerated approval or more use in different areas. Um, but the feeling, I think, from experts is like anything that's done to kind of bolster up accelerated approval in that way is probably going to also come with more sticks to kind of make sure, um, right, the promise of, you know, the getting the other outcomes on the back end and so forth is done in perhaps, you know, a more efficient and reliable manner. Yeah, that seems to make sense is that, you know, putting something together, you know, that kind of ensures the confirmatory trials are done and that somebody acts on the the results of the confirmatory trials, whether good or bad, you know, uh, you know, I mean, that that seems to make logical sense, whether, you know, whether that actually happens or not. Nobody knows. Nobody knows yet. But And so burdensome for FDA to go through the process right now. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, and they're constantly reviewing a lot of, you know, these applications to stay open. And, you know, I think they would like to see kind of a an endpoint, too. So, yeah, to that point, um, uh, last fall, I think September, October, FDA announced it was it was proposing to withdraw McKenna from the market, the preterm birth prevention drug. And uh, the sponsor requested a public hearing and there has been no word from FDA on this issue. So that's all just been hanging out there for the past 10 months. So this might be the kind of thing that OIG looks at. Well, in the in the Avastin saga with um, you know breast cancer, I mean that took. I mean, did it take a year? It took eleven was, months from start yeah. to finish. Yeah. So I mean, I, I I would I think a lot of people would like to see that process go faster. And you know maybe there's no way with due process rights and everything else you could do that, but you know maybe there's some way to some some things they can do to streamline it. Well, people have pointed to the European system where of conditional marketing where you have to reapply, I believe it's every year, to stay on the market. So it becomes less less of FDA's job and more of the sponsor's job to demonstrate why they should stay on the market. Yeah, but then you run into, uh, you know, there, there's more administrative burden because oh, yeah. you're you're dealing with these reapplications every, you know, every year and you yeah. have to, you have to adjudicate them. Exactly. You know, yeah. In a timely fashion. So that's good and bad. <laughs> Next, we're going to discuss the latest on the BLA for the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. There's increasing pressure to grant it full approval sooner rather than later. And it looks like this week, the agency acknowledged that, right, Sarah? Right. So late, um, on late last Friday, um, there was a, a number of reports, and then um, Peter Marks gave an interview to the Washington Post, basically saying, "Look, we're we're going to like sprint mode here. Um, we're going to try and, um, you know, pull in more staff and make sure you know staff who are working on this are really just focused on this activity to get this done as fast as possible." Since then, I think there's been like a range of speculation and reports as to exactly how soon FDA can 
you know, finish this review, everything from potentially sometime this month in August to around Labor Day to mid-September. Um, <laughs> you know, it's so getting a little bit exhausting, you know, people all gaming out exactly the time, the timing of this. But yeah, they seem to at least be trying to make sure they're acknowledging um, the sentiment out there, which is there's a percentage of there's a feeling among some people that giving the full approval may motivate more people to get vaccinated. It may make other um, some entities like employers or businesses and so forth feel more comfortable mandating vaccines among employees or for entry to um, events and stuff. So there's certainly been a lot of pressure for FDA to go fast and they seem to be saying um, that's what they're gonna do. It's it wasn't like super clear to me, I guess, how much of a change this is because they had always indicated, you know, they were doing this work as fast as they possibly could, um, and had always kind of predicted, you know, they would get this done well ahead of the, um, you know, six month priority review deadline. Um, but you know, if, if they found any other efficient efficiencies and things they could do here um, to speed it up, giving given the you know public sentiment that this is really important, then I suppose that's great. Um, the other thing that's a little bit interesting is an FDA won't kind of directly confirm this, but it seems like Marks himself is taking a more you know hands-on role in this approval um, or the application review. I should say, um, and you know, some people had interesting thoughts about that. You know, they just wanted to. They said that they didn't feel like it was necessarily wrong for Marks to be, you know, more involved in something so high profile as this. But they also just wanted to make sure that, you know, the scientific experts on this product and in this vaccine area were still, you know, kind of getting to call the shots, and that, um, you know, in the name of speed, you know, any of the experts at FDA really looking at the data um, don't get kind of overlooked. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting to talk about this and, and them going faster, because I remember when the one of the first times I heard Peter Marks talk about the BLA portion of this, he said, there's things that we can speed up, but there are also things we can't speed up. Like there, there are studies that that just take as long as they take and you can't make them go faster. So they have to wait for them to be completed. And if you try and, you know, you know, if you try and, and, and fudge with it, then it's not going to, it's not going to work. So, you know, there were, they, they admitted early on, we're going to need more time to do this now, but now we're at this stage where again, we're going to have this optics problem and it's going to be a big communication issue. Like it's been, you know, pretty much since the vaccine, the EUA was about ready to be, uh, you know, approved, uh, you know, where you're going to have people saying, oh, they just, they, there's pressure from somebody, you can pick whoever you want. And now they're just, they're just hustling and they're cutting corners just when they flat out said, we're not going to do that. And instead of them saying, hey, the BLA's proved now, we went through it, it was thorough, and now we're done, they're going to have to say, no, we didn't cut any corners, no, we didn't go any faster, we just put more people on the application at the end to help us get it done. It's just going to be, I, I just foresee, you know, more of those kinds of questions instead of, hey, in record time, we approved this vaccine BLA. 
Right. I think that's the the problem for for FDA is they're I think they're in like kind of a no win situation. There's going to be a portion of people that no matter what they do here, um, some people are going to say they were too fast, and some people are going to say they were too slow. And you know, like I said, I. I I, I, there definitely are people that think this is super, super important that they move from emergency use authorization to full approval for, you know, vaccine confidence or uptake and, you know, potential mandates and stuff. But then on the other hand, um, you know, some of the polling that shows some people would be more willing to get the vaccine if it's fully approved also shows that most Americans have no clue, you know, whether it's approved or whether it's an emergency use authorization or what that means. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the Department of Justice and um, courts and so forth have already made it pretty clear that the emergency use authorization um, doesn't necessarily preclude some of the mandates people are talking about. Um, and people I talked to, you know, um, about this a little bit were saying, you know, from an FDA perspective, you know, they have to, they when they're focusing on, you know, the public health needs of most importance, you know, initially what they might have been thinking is, you know, these vaccines are out there, they're widely available, um, people can get them. So, you know, it's they might not have seen this as quite the level of rush as maybe it was for the initial EUA. and. Um, there's also, you know, lots of complications um, in terms of COVID for them finishing this up in terms of getting to some of these facilities and doing all the work they want to do. So, I mean, it also strikes me that this vaccines group in CBER has an awful lot on its plate um, it, beyond the Pfizer BLA, which they're rushing to get through. Apparently, the Moderna BLA is now fully in-house. They've got the Modernal, Moderna amendment request to its EUA for authorization in teens. They've got all the safety monitoring of all the vaccines they've authorized so far. I'm sure they're still working very closely with sponsors of other vaccines, even though I doubt we're going to see any um, any other EUAs anytime soon, new EUAs anytime soon. Um, the booster issue is getting more attention now at ASIP. Uh, a week or two ago, there was a comment from CDC saying nobody has filed for, um, you know, to add a booster to their EUA, but still I'm sure FDA has been drawn into those conversations. So, you know, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that they are, you know, really doing what they can to try to bolster that group. And I, I don't think you even mentioned, Sue, the, you know, the pending, um, data they're expecting soon from the companies on like the five to 11 year old population. Right. <laughs> and, and then eventually um, for right EUAs or BLAs for also the under five population. Right. So, and I think there's, again, you know, if they're figuring out how to prioritize all this work, there's probably a reasonable argument you can make that says they should prioritize, right. The expanding population, you know, applications, right over, you know, full approval. So, right, I mean, I think there's been some like comments and kind of pundit type people out th th there that, you know, I think we're trying to paint this as FDA 
you know, kind of twiddling their thumbs and not taking this crisis seriously. And I, 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 I think in, unless we have any evidence of that, I think that's just probably a very unfair characterization of what's yeah. going on among the rank yeah. and file uh, CBER staffers at FDA during this pandemic. So, yeah. Yeah, the what are you the what are you waiting for argument just seems that that seems to be kind of like the the pervasive one because you know hey you know because they keep everyone keeps saying hey we've given hundreds of millions of doses in this country and around the world we you know what 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 else do you need you know this is like the largest clinical study in human history or you know something like that but yeah like you all, like you all just said there's you know a million other things that they have to worry about you know, to before they can provide full approval. Um, and oh, by the the, uh, the Novavax vaccine also could be coming in in a few months, too. So I'm sure there's kind of advanced things going on with that one um, as well. But the the other question I kind of had about this was that there was a mention in there about them, about uh, I believe it was um, Janet Woodcock and some other people helping to move people around maybe from Cedar to Seber to help them complete some of the the portions of the review of some of the portions of the application. I, I thought they had moved a bunch of people around at the beginning of the pandemic to deal with pandemic stuff. So is this a, additional people on top of that? Did they move some people back to their regular jobs when things kind of, you know, started to wane and maybe like some of the workload kind of, you know, slowed down a little bit or, is this like, I mean, are they literally like taking entire offices now or emptying them out and putting them on COVID stuff? I know early on, uh, at least with Cedar, with the Office of New Drugs, that they <clears throat> repositioned a lot of people. They had people volunteering to help out in terms of triaging, you know, proposals for um, INDs and things like that for potential treatments. Um, and I think you know, at the, by the beginning of this year, a lot of those people had gone back to their quote unquote normal jobs. Um, I'm not sure about CBER, but I could see maybe, you know, that being part of their all hands on deck approach to to um, reposition as many people as they as they felt they could. Yeah. And Cedar, I mean, Cedar is just a bigger center. They have more people and maybe more, more resources to share at this point given how heavily the COVID crisis has focused on the CBER space. Yeah, and I'm sure ORA, too, has a bunch of, you know, the, all their inspection experts that deal with all this stuff. If they can't travel, I'm sure they're, if they're not moving over the, to help out with this, you know, however they, you know, however they can do it, I'm sure they're they're being made involved as well. So. Finally, today, we're going to revisit the advisory committee process, something that certainly has made more news in the wake of the Adjuhelm and even the COVID vaccine approval and EUA processes. Now it seems that we're in an advisory committee drought. During the first half of the year, the agency conducted only seven ADCOM meetings, and in the second half of the year, there's only been one. No meetings are scheduled in August, and only one meeting has been scheduled for September so far. Mike McCann of Prevision Policy, who wrote this piece for the Pink Sheet, opined that this could just be a coincidence and the continued trend in recent years of the agency being more selective with the products that reach that stage. But you also have to wonder whether the Adjuhelm experience and the fallout from it, including FDA intentions to tweak the advisory committee process, may be affecting some of the decision making on meeting scheduling. 
So, Sue, you've probably covered more advisory committee meetings than Sarah and I combined. What do you think is going on here? I'm not really sure. My One of my initial reactions was maybe people are just trying to wait out <laughs> COVID, <laughs> that they go, go back to in-person meetings, although at this point I don't see that anytime soon. I just don't think people are eager to continue the virtual meetings on the advisory committees unless they absolutely have to. Um, and then my other reaction was maybe these applications are just hitting slowdowns or problems in other areas, such as inspections um, or, you know, underlying issues with the applications. So, you know, I don't know if it, I, I don't know if it's a coincidence. I, I, I really don't think it's an Aduhelm hangover um, because they've had a fair share since that meeting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we will see more being scheduled in the coming weeks in terms of the fall. They usually kick up the process a little bit in the fall. Yeah, I, I, as I thought about it more, I wondered, too, whether the, the pandemic experience and the virtual meeting um, stuff, you know, just the way they handled it is is kind of is affecting all this, you know, as well, because, I mean, Sue, you you've experienced the issues firsthand. I've heard the complaints. I've seen the you know the the issues that they've had. Um, you know, sponsors complain about the setup. They complain they complained about the effect it's having on the actual meetings themselves and potentially the outcomes. They they can't see who's in the room. They can't tell if people are paying attention. They can't. The discussions aren't as good. You know, so it it it's you know certainly possible that. The that FDA just wants to be more selective now because they realize the difficulties they have with the virtual meetings and getting out of them what they need to get out of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, they still have not completely resolved some of these technical issues. The Adobe Connect platform that they use for these advisory committees is really less than ideal. Um, it just seems like you never know if there's going to be a major technical issue on any given committee day. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, we're, I know we're all we're all hoping for in-person meetings some at some point, and you know, certainly if we uh, you know we get to the point where the pandemic's under control, that'll be one of the the first things that that pops that jumps jumps out at a advisory committee notice when they say that the the meeting will be at the White Oak headquarters. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think you're going to see that anytime soon, not only because FDA is going to be very conservative about this, but also I think advisory committee members are not going to be eager to jump on a plane for a one-day meeting across the country, mm -hmm. you know, unlike, you know, relative to what might have been two years ago. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and and you know, it's not like, you know, staying in hotels is is, you know, the ideal, you know, or, you know, ideal situation when you're in the middle of something like this, or even when you haven't had the, you know, when the pandemic is, the virus is still kind of still circulating, even with everyone vaccinated. So, yeah, it'll be, uh, it may be a while, but, you know, we're hopeful, right? <laughs> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Sue Sutter. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>